This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. Be sure to check out and subscribe to my flagship podcast, Everything Voluntary, where I seek to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. Hello and welcome to Thinking and Doing. We're going to look at some life pro tips And then I'm going to end with some audio by somebody else, and I'll explain when I get there. About 16 minutes worth. All right, the first life pro tip. Here we go. If you happen to get a promotion or come into a large sum of money, don't treat yourself or alter your lifestyle by spending more in any way. Here's uh, an elaboration. Take care of whatever bills you have to pay. Invest that money and wait at least a few months if it's a steady flow of that money to make sure that this new income is concrete and won't disappear. It's a lot harder to break away from spending money than sticking with the lifestyle you've had for years. All right, so this um, I think is pretty good. It's talking about a couple of different things, though. Getting a promotion is more of a, there's more of an expectation that this is going to continue in the future for some time, especially if it's a company that you've been at for a little while, and you've moved up, or you've moved to another department or something, and and it comes with a larger paycheck. That's a bit different than coming into some money. Okay, let's say you've, um, well, here's an example from my life recently. I was driving along in my car and a gentleman switched lanes on my right into me. And he kind of smashed in my rear passenger side door and the rear uh, quarter panel there and just, just a few, just a few scratches onto the front door. The door functions properly. The window opens and closes. It's mostly cosmetic damage. And it is a bit of an eyesore. And this car, I'd only had for a year, right? I bought it uh, last year, summer, June, June June-ish, I believe. And, you know, I immediately got an estimate and contacted his insurance, gave him my statement, contacted my insurance because his insurance recommended I do that in case the guy gives his insurance a different story and they believe him, they're going to come after me, right? He's, it's going to be subrogated, which means they'll pay him and then they'll come after me to try to recover. That's what subrogation is. Uh, so his insurance, the guy I was speaking with advised that I, because I at first I was like, well, this isn't my fault. Why would I contact my insurance? But he recommended that I do that so that my insurance can protect me in that instance. So I said, okay. So I opened a claim with my insurance and gave them a recorded statement, which is what they do to the adjuster, and then gave them all the contact information for the guy. And then both insurances had spoken with the guy and gotten his statement. And surprise, surprise, the guy told the opposite story, said that I came into his lane. So both insurance companies do their own investigation 
And all they have are the photos I sent them of the damage on both vehicles. There's no video. I didn't have a dash cam, which is another life pro tip that I see all the time is to get a dash cam. They're really cheap on Amazon. I haven't done it. I'm actually using, I'm using both of my plugins in my car and I don't know how I could power it. So I've got to figure that out if I deem it important enough. But anyway, had I a dash cam, then it would have, it would have shown clearly I stayed in my lane. Then all of a sudden my car gets jostled and then we pull over. It would have been obvious, but I didn't have that. And the guy was in a rental vehicle visiting Salt Lake from California with his family. It was a minivan. He didn't have that. And we decided at the time that to involve the police would have just uh, probably, you know, both of us would have walked away with some sort of ticket and it just would have made the situation worse. So I generally shy away from getting the police involved. It it's, it's typically does uh, more harm than good, I've noticed. So we didn't do that. Um, and it's funny because at the time I had my, my phone out and I was snapping photos and I should have had, I should have had my audio program just recording like you would like in a traffic stop because I was talking to him about it and I asked him, I'm like, Hey, can I, can I get your statement, you know, telling me what happened? Can I record it? And he declined and he said, you know, I'd rather just let the insurance companies handle it. And at first I'm thinking, okay, this is going to go either really bad for me or it's going to go fine for me, but I'm going to take that risk. Because at the end of the day, it's mostly cosmetic. It's an eyesore. It's not a, not a big deal. And if it bothers me enough, I can just make a claim with my own insurance and, you know, get it, get the damage fixed. All right. So he tells his insurance and my insurance the opposite of what I said. And all they have are the photos. And the photos just show the damage. It doesn't really, it's not really obvious who came into whose lane. The damage probably would have looked the same if I turned into him or if he turned into me. So his insurance concludes that I'm at fault, and my insurance concludes that he's at fault. So what happens in that case is my insurance will pay for my damage as a no-charge payout, which means it's not going to affect my premiums. My insurance is not going to go up because I'm not at fault. The other guy is. And then it gets subrogated, and they go after him. And I assume his insurance is going to do the same thing. Um, but as they were deciding all of that, I went and got an estimate of the damages at a local body shop. And I knew his insurance was AAA, so um, I told them it was AAA. They said, okay, great, we'll use AAA rates. And they put together the estimate, and it came out to just over $5,000. And so here's, here's another life pro tip related. Don't expect and don't, in your mind, spend money until you actually have it. <laughs> because I'm thinking, okay, this guy's insurance is going to side with me, and I'm going to get the full $5,000. He's going to pay the, his deductible. And then when that didn't seem to be the case, I thought, okay, my deductible is 500. So let's do the 5,000 minus 500. I should get about 4,500 for this. And then I can decide if I want to repair the damage or do something else with that money. And I'm thinking about, you know, what I can do with it. So I'm, in my mind, I'm spending it. And then uh, when it's, when it's, uh, when I'm connecting the body shop with my insurance to get the estimate over, the body shop goes into their system and changes the insurance provider from AAA to American Family, which updates um, all the rates. And apparently the way this works is providers have different negotiated rates with different insurance companies. So what happens is the estimate goes down. It goes from 5000 to about 4200 It drops about 800 bucks, And then you've got to subtract my deductible. So I get a check for my insurance for $3,700. And I'm like, oh, man. I'm disappointed. I'm like, this is not as much as I thought it would be. 
So that was, you know, I'm, I've never been through this process like this. So I'm learning things about this everywhere. So that's, that's good. There's some benefit there. I'm understanding and learning how this works. I'm learning more about how insurance works, insurance industry, how these things are negotiated, blah, blah, blah. So this is great. I'm benefiting in that way. I'm getting an education here. And now I've got a check sitting on my desk for 3700 Now, something else I learned. I have a loan on this car, so I don't own title. My credit union owns title for this vehicle. They are the lien holder. So when American Family made out the check, it's got my name and it says and, and then it has my credit union name. So the check is not made out to me. I can't take this check anywhere and cash it, take it to my bank and just deposit it in my account and use the money how I see fit because I'm not the only interested party in the state of this vehicle. So I take the check to my credit union and I say, what are my options here? I really don't want to repair this damage because it doesn't bother me and I could find a better use for this money. And at the very least, I would rather use this money to pay down the loan. I'd rather do that than repair the damage. So I'm, I'm okay with the damage, and I actually, I actually, in the meantime, I bought these little black, um, the, the car is gray, it's a gray Civic. I bought these little black bandage-shaped decals, and I'm going to stick on there. I got two of them, and it's going to look like there's bandages on the damage. And I thought, that's cool, the kids will like that. So that's, that's what I'm going to do there. I don't want to repair this. So I asked the credit union, what, what are my options here? And the, the teller calls the collections department and gets the full story, because he didn't know either. So he's getting an education. <laughs> and he tells me... Uh, they deposit the check and they put a hold on it. And they'll only release the hold when I come back with the car repaired and show them that it's repaired. And I say, okay, let me have the check back. I got to figure out what I want to do with this. And I ask him, I say, if I just pay this off, if I just pay the car off, then you don't hold the lien anymore and you guys will just sign the check because you don't have an interest in it anymore. So there's no reason there's no reason why you wouldn't sign the check over to me, right? And he said, well, I don't really know the answer to that, but that sounds like that would be the case. And I'm sure that's the case. Um, so now I'm now I'm deciding what am I going to do. I've got I've got space in a line of credit. I've got you know I could uh, I got retirement savings I could take a loan from. I could do a number of things to get out of this lien holder situation. But the point is I came into this money and I've got this thirty seven hundred dollars and I've got to decide what I'm going to do with it. And I've and I've thought about it for a couple months now. This is how long this has been going on. I don't think that. Um, the best use of this money is to repair the damage. I think that that would be a waste. I mean, this is a car. It's a material thing. This $3,700, I mean, I still owe 8000 on it to 2015 Civic I bought just a year ago. So I could use this 3700 bring that balance significantly down, you know, to 4800 or whatever, and then match that difference. And now my car's paid off, um, at least in the sense of uh, getting title to it. But this is, you know, 3700 It's not a large sum of money. But these, these things can happen where you get some sort of insurance payout, some sort of a windfall. So that's the other situation. Either you're getting a raise at work or you're getting some sort of a windfall. Um, it's probably best if you've got some outstanding debt, take care of that first. After which, after which it might be a good idea to put the money somewhere. I mean, it says invest that money. That can be difficult to decide how to do that. If you've got some sort of protected investment account, something with no downside and uh, limited upside, such as an equity, excuse me, just, I just tapped my microphone, such as an equity index life insurance policy or something like that, then that could be a good spot for it. Or just stick it in a money market savings account and just try to forget about it. And then later on, 
who knows, maybe you have some emergency. Maybe it now becomes your emergency fund and all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is very helpful. I'm glad I didn't splurge this on taking the kids somewhere fun, you know, buying a bunch of stuff I don't need, blah, blah, blah. You know, and maybe maybe there truly is something you need or, or somebody in your family needs and that's a good spot. So the point is just think. Think before you do, right? That's this podcast, Thinking and Doing. Thinking, then doing. Maybe I should rename it. Thinking, then doing. <laughs> All right, we've gone on way too long. Um, all right, sec- second life pro tip. Sorry, that one was by Jam Jam 1090. This one is by Eternal Monk 7. He says, stop watching and or listening to news and media all day. The onslaught of terrifying media news is sending us untrue signals that we are constantly in danger. Watching news all day can affect our mood, our behavior, and ultimately our mental health in the long run. He breaks us down. Key takeaways. Trying to strike a balance between being informed by news media and not becoming overwhelmed by it is difficult, especially during a global crisis. A constant stream of sensational or disaster reporting, whether you're exposed actively or passively, can elevate stress levels and trigger symptoms like anxiety and trouble sleeping. Effectively managing your media consumption can help you stay up to date while also reducing your stress. I don't, I don't uh, pop open the news ever. I don't go into news.google.com and just look through headlines. I stopped doing that years ago. I get my news through, you know, browsing Reddit. If something is big and important enough to get everybody's attention, you're going to see it coming through something, someplace like Reddit. Or you're going to hear about it from family and friends, right? It's, it's going to be obvious. Everything else is just unimportant. Probably doesn't affect you in any way, and it's just going to hype you up. Uh, 24-hour news, the stuff that just is nonstop, is probably the worst thing you can have running in your house. I'd probably definitely stay away from that. Uh, it says, too much media can take a toll on your physical and mental health. Uh, Hughes suggests, oh, I think he links to some stuff. Oh, verywellmind.com. Uh, Hughes suggests watching too much news contributes to increased anxiety levels. This anxiety can easily creep into other areas of life and make it difficult to concentrate, complete daily tasks, or relax as much as needed. Over the long term, this anxiety can affect mood, which could lead to feelings of depression. Instead of consuming news all day, think about some constructive ways to spend the time. The, the guy he links to offers these ideas. Number one, take advantage of technology and connect with loved ones virtually. Number two, start a hobby. Number three, deep clean the house or garage. Number four, get caught up on work tasks that have piled up. Number five, get out of the house and exercise as much as you can to help release any of that pent-up anxiety. Go for a walk. Go for a long walk. Really explore your neighborhood. Try to hit every street. See every house. When my when my my first kid was younger, we'd go for these long walks with him in the stroller, me and my wife, you know, just getting to know the neighborhood. And our ours is a is a much older neighborhood. Older, smaller house. So when you walk around, it's very difficult to find a house that does not have some addition on it. And it's pretty cool to see because there's a lot of a repeat architecture, like like every other house is the same style, but there's always an addition, whether it's an external garage or an attached garage or even a second level. So just seeing what people have done over the years to their houses is, is kind of cool. So just walk around your neighborhoods and you can kill an hour easy. And that's probably more productive and more healthy than sitting in front of CNN or Fox News. Number six, start a mindfulness or meditation practice. Learning how to relax and calm our nervous system when it's under stress is a valuable skill and requires practice. Pick up stoicism. (laughs) Study the masters. When you're on your walk, you can shut everything off and just enjoy and walk around and look at things. 
Um, if you're doing some deep cleaning of the house or garage, stick a podcast in your ear. Stick this podcast in your ear. Stick my other podcast in your ear. Or my third podcast, Voluntary's Voices. There's so many amazing podcasts out there. Whether you're into science or politics or probably stay away from politics. That's, that's kind of like putting CNN in your ear. <laughs> um, philosophy, comedy. If you don't mind raunchiness, real raunchiness, then probably one of the best comedy podcasts is Legion, Legion of Skanks. It's absolutely hilarious, but it's very un-PC and very raunchy. I mean, they're skanks. It's in the name, right? Legion of Skanks. It's very good, though. It's very funny. All right. I like this one. Stop watching or listening to news and media all day. That's the other thing, too. When you when you watch this stuff all day and you're you're seeing, you know, uh, people like Nancy Grace and they're sitting here talking about, like, child abductions or child murders or something, and they're talking about it all day long, every day. It's very easy to think that we that the world is more dangerous now than it used to be, and it's simply not true. Statistics show that our world here in the U.S. is safer. All measures, all these things, robberies, murders, rapes, child abductions, are all trending downward, and they have been for 30 years. So if you're watching news and you're just thinking how horrible everything is, you're wrong. And it's obviously inconsistent, so you should probably turn it off or, or turn, it, turn it down in the sense that you're only looking at it an hour a day or so. All right, let's go to the last one, which I'll talk just a bit about, and then I'm going to play about 16 minutes worth of audio by somebody to introduce this, and, uh, and then I'll sign off from there. Okay, this is by Chaotic Sinner. When you disagree with someone, be tactful in how you approach the situation. Learn to pick your battles and practice using a non-aggressive tone. Also, don't be afraid to stand up. When done correctly, more things get done through constructive confrontation. All right, this, this brought a couple of things to my mind. The first thing it brought to my mind is the Socratic method. The Socratic method, named after Socrates, the ancient philosopher, is a way to engage with people without being confrontational. It's a way to engage with people without... Um, without causing really an argument. And it's it's not a difficult thing to do. Look look this up. Go to Wikipedia or just go to Google and, and look up the Socratic method. The way I understand it is the Socratic method is simply asking questions, right? It is, it is a form of active listening. You're asking questions. You're getting them to explain their position. And then you're asking more questions to dig in and to help them really tease out what it is they're saying and what it is they believe in. And if what they're saying and what it is they believe in is is a is something rational and logical and can be defended like that, then when they're explaining it, it's going to make sense. It's going to make sense when they hear it, and it's going to make sense when you hear it. And if it doesn't, then wherever something seems off, that's where you direct your question. Because if if what they're saying really doesn't hold water, then they're going to realize that when they're trying to answer your questions about it. They're going to realize that what they're saying sounds pretty dumb at some, at some point, at some level. Maybe the superficial, uh, the superficial, uh, first, uh, first level explanation of what it, whatever it is they believe sounds, uh, sounds good, sounds logical. But when you dig in, you might discover that it's a bunch of hokum. It's a bunch of bullshit. And by just asking the questions instead of attacking them and attacking their beliefs and like throwing arguments back at them, if you're just asking the questions, you're getting them to dig into the, the, the trough that is their position 
and they're now discovering the muck, right? So that's the Socratic method. And uh, my understanding is that it, it, at, at some point you can, I mean, people can be made to feel pretty stupid kind of of their own accord. So that's the first thing um, this brought to mind. It's probably better to just ask questions than it is to just confront and throw arguments back and you're just going to get into an argument and it could get, you know, it could go places you don't want it to go. So the Socratic method might be superior in the sense of how can we have constructive conversations with people without getting into, you know, heated arguments. And that's not to say that when somebody is made to feel dumb, they don't, they won't get angry and maybe even get violent. I think that's what got Socrates killed, to be honest. Maybe not. Um, the second thing that's brought to my mind is a practice called nonviolent communication. And this, you can find bits of nonviolent communication in other, in other schools of thought. Um, you find it, a bit of it in parent effectiveness training by Thomas Gordon. You find the concept of I messages and active listening. This is part of nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication was something specifically, my understanding, was started by a guy named Mar Marshall Rosenberg. And I'm going to introduce this with about 16 minutes worth of audio by Marshall Rosenberg talking about what this is. And then I recommend if you really want to learn more about it and start practicing it, then I would buy his book called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. So I'll when I put the description together and I put nonviolent communication, that'll be a link and you can, that'll take you to my, one of my Amazon links so that I get a commission and you can buy that book. You can find all sorts of explainer videos and all kinds of stuff. There's even a really good podcast that was recorded uh, for a short while called The Art of NVC uh, by Micah Salaberos, I believe his name was. He explained things very well. So check out that podcast. I don't believe, I don't know if it's still around. I don't know if it's still accessible. But I did, I, I did share um, one of his episodes, I think, Fundamentals of NVC, in the Voluntarist Voices podcast. So you can go to everythingvoluntary.com, just search nonviolent communication. You can find that episode, and you can listen to it if you can't find it through his podcast. All right, here is Marshall Rosenberg. I started from the question of uh, how come some people enjoy other people's suffering? so that it makes violence enjoyable, so that people find it heroic to punish people that they judge as bad. And then how come other people in the same society uh, are just the opposite? They get their joy not in believing that there's bad people that need to be punished, but they get their joy in contributing to people's well-being. So I then saw that there was quite a different language and quite a different consciousness on the part of people who behaved in the violent way as opposed to the compassionate way. And I decided to try to clarify that. What is the nature of communication that helps us to connect in a way in which we enjoy contributing to each other's well-being? And how is that process of communication different in the people who contribute to the violence of others? Then, after I developed nonviolent communication, which is the language and the power usage that I saw contributing to compassionate interaction, I then wondered, where the heck did we ever learn this other approach? So then I got interested in, where did it all begin, where we learned a way of thinking and communicating that contributes to violence on our planet? And here, uh, scholars and scientists like... Uh, Walter Wink, the theologian, and his book, The Powers That Be, and others who share his perspective, 
trace this back to about 8,000 years ago when various things happened. I won't go into now, but uh, we came out of it with uh, organizing ourselves in terms of where a few people who claim to be superior dominate others. Sometimes they base their superiority claiming their family was born closer to God, and so they controlled on the basis of the divine rights of kings. But whatever it is, we started to live in cultures in which a few people claiming to be superior dominated others, and that requires a language of domination, a language in which you classify people in terms of what they are. Are they peons or are they royalty? Are they good or are they bad? Are they normal or are they abnormal? That way of thinking goes with domination because in a domination structure, the people who claim to be on the top claim to know what is right and what is wrong, and they maintain their power through the use of power over tactics such as punishment, reward, guilt, shame. And so they need a language that justifies the use of uh, punishment and reward, the language of retributive justice in which you make judgments of what the other person deserves. And that is dependent on how you judge them, whether good or bad, right or wrong, and so forth. So that's how I think it all began about 8,000 years ago when we started to have domination structures in which a few people dominated many. Before that, when we were more in the hunter-gatherer style of uh, society, uh, people that I trust uh, in their studies anthropologically uh, tell me we didn't have violence in the rate that we have since. So uh, nonviolent communication now tries to get us back to what I think is a more natural way of communicating. So it's, it's an, I think where we've gotten is an evolutionary snag, where we've gotten stuck on the basis of some unfortunate learning over 8,000 years. And nonviolent communication helps us come back to life, back to a more natural way of living, where the, our evaluations are on the basis of how needs are, are served. Are we meeting our needs and the needs of others, rather than who is what? Are you, who's right, who's wrong, who's good and who's bad? No. Are our needs getting met? And if not, what can we do so that everyone's needs get met? That's the language of nonviolent communication. Our training is based on the assumption that the kind of beliefs and judgments that people have that lead them to dehumanize one another and to deny each other's rights that language, we think, is a distortion of need language that people are trying to say is that our needs are in danger. Some of our needs are in danger, but they are not given a language that helps them to say that. So they go to justifying this on the basis of what uh, their interpretation is of what words were that were written down centuries before. The Bible says, or the Koran says, and uh, they then tried to use these documents... Uh, as justifying that they are right and the other side is wrong. So when I'm mediating between two groups that are thinking that way, who are at war with each other, each time they use that kind of thinking, I translate it into an unmet need. So when I'm working with two groups, such as two tribes that I was working with in northern Nigeria that were at war with each other, and I ask, what needs of yours are not being met? And I'm confident if we can get everybody's needs clarified, we'll find a strategy for meeting the needs of people on both sides. 
And a member from the, a chief from the Christian tribe immediately screams across the table, these people are murderers. Uh, the other people scream back, these people have been dominating us for 80 years. See, I asked for needs, and they both gave me an analysis of the other side's pathology. Sometimes the analysis takes the form of, well, uh, our constitution says, and the other side says, no, it doesn't say that, it says, uh, or the Bible says, no, but the Koran says. Uh, so when people are, when I ask for needs, and they immediately go into these intellectual judgments that justifies their position, I translate that into what needs I hear being expressed through that. So when the chief screamed, you people are murderers, I said, chief, are you, is, are you saying that your need for safety isn't being met? You see, so I hear the need behind his analysis. And if I guess wrong, he can help me, but I'm looking for needs. But I happen to guess right. That's not too hard to guess what the need might be. He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Then I try to get the other side to hear the need. So I said, would a chief on this side please tell me what you heard this chief said his needs were? A chief on the other side of the table screamed across the table, then why did you kill my son? You see, uh, I had been told ahead of time that three people in the room knew that somebody who had killed a member of their family was in the group. So it's not easy, even when you get people to express the needs, it's not easy to see that in the other person when you have these enemy images. So I had to work hard to get the chief from the second side to just, just hear that. Just tell me, chief, what do you hear him say? He's saying he has a need for safety. Okay, just even that makes a big difference, you see. We're out of this intellectual analysis justifying position, and we're connecting at the level of human needs. Then I helped the other side get clear what their needs were, and heard by the first side. At that point, one of the chiefs that hadn't said anything jumped up and said, if we know how to speak this way, we don't have to kill each other. You see, it didn't take long, even in this culture, to for them, to, this one chief at least, to see that if you can just talk about your needs and not into this analysis of who's right, who's wrong, we can solve anything. So we not only have to get one side to say clearly what's alive in them, what needs of yours are not getting met, then I have to get the other side to connect with that. And that's not easy, even if it's a simple message, because if the other side's brain has been programmed to be diagnosing the pathology in this person. Uh, even if I've said this person says he has a need for safety, I had to ask that person at least three or four times to repeat it back after I repeated it, because his first reaction is, and why did you kill my son? And then the next one was, you can't trust these people. They'll say anything. And then it took a while before I could give him the understanding he needed to be able to just hear the simple phrase. A man said he has a need for safety that isn't being met by the way some of the conflicts are being dealt with. Whew, that took a lot of work just to get that far, but once I got there. So the empathy is the second party seeing this other person's humanness. And the way we see the humanness is by seeing the needs without these enemy images clouding that. It's not easy to do that. It requires full presence to what is alive in this other person. We teach people how to hear the needs on two parts of ourself. The one part of ourself is that part that evaluates what we do. Every action we take, we need to evaluate it about whether it meets our needs or not. If I cook a meal for myself, I need to evaluate, did that meet my need for nurturance, taste, and so forth? 
And if it didn't, then I want to change that. So whether it's something I did for myself, or if I say something to another person, sometimes it doesn't meet the needs of mine. So I need to evaluate it. Now, how do I evaluate it? If I evaluate it by attacking myself, I say that was a stupid thing to do. We instead suggest to people that you evaluate what you do by whether it met your needs or not. You'll find that you can learn better without losing self-respect. If we can learn from our mistakes by being conscious of what need wasn't met to begin with, and then to understand another part of ourself. What need were we trying to meet by doing what we did? So that's the same process I was saying using between two groups, but I'm using it within myself between two different functions within myself. The function that evaluates what I do, the function that chooses to do what I do. And if I evaluate them in the way I was educated to evaluate, I'd say to myself, that was a stupid thing to do. How could you do something so dumb? And then if I look at the other side of myself about why I do it, well, I had to do it. I had no choice. It denies responsibility. And I can have that going on within myself forever. And if I do, I'll have a lot of depression, guilt, and shame, and it will be very hard to learn from my human limitation. But if I can see the truth, the truth is I didn't meet this need of mine by what I did. What need was I trying to meet? Oh yeah, I was trying to meet this need. Well, it met that need, but it didn't, the way I did it didn't meet this other need. Okay, how do I get both needs met? If I can think in terms of needs, I'm far more likely to learn from my limitations without losing self-respect. In our training, we suggest to people that we look at what causes things like depression. We look at it in a way other than to think that it's because there's something wrong with us that we get depressed, that it's a mental illness. Uh, we have reasons for worrying about the whole concept of mental illness. We think that some people who we call mentally ill, they have some physical problems that affect their thinking and their, their chemistry so that they think that they're something they're not or they think that people are uh, trying to attack them that aren't. So this can be caused by some physical dysfunction and I wouldn't want to call them mental illnesses. I would want to say the person has a, a neurological or a chemical imbalance or something. These are the smallest percentage of people who get labeled mentally ill have those kind of problems. The others, I think it's a very unscientific uh, term to use, mental illness, but worse than unscientific, by making it seem like people have something wrong within them, uh, we don't look at what really contributes to things like depression and to the kind of violence we have on the planet. Our understanding in nonviolent communication is that people get depressed, very depressed, because of how they're trained to think how they're educated to think. And they get stuck in this thinking, and depression is the result of it. So we don't see it as an illness. We, With people that have that, we try to help them become conscious of what you're telling yourself that's making you so depressed. And then we show them how what you're telling yourself, the judgments you make of yourself, simply are a resulting because a need of yours hasn't been met. And unfortunately, we haven't been educated to get connected to the need. So when that need isn't being met, you go up to your head and start blaming yourself, shaming yourself, attacking yourself. And the depression is an inevitable result of how you think about yourself. So we show people how to transform that thinking about themselves into a language of life. 
if you say I shouldn't be depressed or there's something wrong with me for being depressed, which is what we give the idea to people, that you're mentally ill if you are depressed or you have bipolar illness. And they now not only have the results of this thinking that makes them depressed, now they think there's something wrong with them for being depressed. So they're doubly depressed because they're judging themselves for judging themselves. So we say, no, there's nothing wrong with you that you do that. You think that way because you were trained to think that way. Now, there's some beauty in it. If you can see the need of yours that wasn't met behind that, you can learn from something. You can better meet your needs. But if you don't get connected to the need of yours that isn't being met, you just stay up in your head saying, I'm a failure. I'll never amount to anything. Or you ask yourself unanswerable questions such as, why did I do that? When you really know the answer, you're already telling yourself, I did it because I'm a failure. I'm a loser. So if you just communicate that way internally, you're going to spend a good deal of your life being depressed. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means you've been educated to think that way. Okay, that was Marshall Rosenberg for Nonviolent Communication. So check that out on Amazon. You can use my link and I'll get a commission for that. I appreciate it. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Just to review, we looked at what you should do if you get a promotion or you come into a large sum of money, right? Think before doing on that why you should probably stop watching and listening to the news media so much. Let's cut that down or completely turn it off. And we looked at the Socratic method and how that can be helpful in, in creating constructive conversations with people and learning their positions and teasing them out to find out if together to find out if they hold water or not. And then we learned a bit about nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg. All right. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends.